Hi, this is Katya Adams. This message is called Reintroducing God from the Book of Esther. Thanks for tuning in to this Upper Room podcast. Wow, thank you, Michael, Larissa, eldership here for having us. We feel like we're amongst family and it's such a joy to be to be with family who you might never have met before, but to know that we are one body and that we're united in his spirit. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I wanna spend just a moment just to give you a little bit more of my story. Most people get very distracted for about 20 minutes with my accent. So I wanna help you with that so that we can just move past that. I know I sound a little bit strange. Um, so I, I'm uh, ethnically Armenian, but I was born in Iran, as Larissa said. And, um, and when I was five, we moved from Iran as a family to the UK. I grew up just south of London and then lived and worked in London for 10 years. And then when Julian and I got married uh, 10 years ago in August, we um, lived in Bedford in the UK for a year and a half. And then we moved to South Africa and lived in South Africa in Durban for four years. Um, and then God called us to the States, we lived in California for about eight months and then moved to Boston. So if I sound strange to you, it's not my fault. I have been exposed to many very different accents throughout my life and now we're just praying the blessing of the Lord over our children, an Armenian mother, a South African father and the Boston accent. What will that create? Lord Jesus, bless them. I wanna tell you a little bit about my family story. And, um, and then we're gonna jump into the book of Esther. I believe today God is going to do some deep work in our hearts as he reintroduces himself to us. And as he gives us a greater awareness for why he gave us a pulse on planet Earth. And so I... I We'll start with the story because it will maybe explain where I'm coming from. So my story really of faith begins with my grandfather. I'm a third generation preacher. And if you know anything about the country of Iran, you'll know that that's incredibly unusual. Um, my story in faith begins with my grandfather. He was um, living in Iran. He met an, Iran uh, an American missionary who gave him a New Testament in Iran. Thank God for the United States. And um, this New Testament was given to him and he sat and he read, he was overwhelmed by God in the pages of the New Testament. And he gave his life to Jesus. At that point, he'd never met a Christian before. Um, we're talking about uh, decades ago in Iran, there wasn't a church to speak of in existence in Iran. They estimate that if there were Christians in Iran, they numbered a few hundred across the whole country of millions of people. And so my grandfather looked to find a church community. He actually found an Armenian Orthodox community. God bless that community. It's questionable whether any of them had encountered God at all or had any faith that was personal to them. But anyway, that's the only community he could find. He joined them. He continued reading the New Testament, really being discipled by scripture. I wanna say so many of us are hungry for spiritual fathers and mothers, which is wonderful and good, but we're neglecting the Word of God who can disciple us if we just immerse ourselves in these words. is the best place to understand how to be a Christian because if you read these words and take them seriously, your life will be transformed. But anyway, thank you. 
He read his New Testament. He, he was reading things that no one was telling him. He encountered the person of the Spirit in the pages of the New Testament. And he was thinking, no one's ever told me about the Holy Spirit. He seems to be a pretty big deal. He got to Acts. He saw that the disciples were told to fast and pray until they had the power, the fire of the Spirit. And so he thought, I, I should probably do what they did. And so he fasted and prayed for 42 days and absolutely nothing happened. How many of you know that when you rely on a formula from past experiences and moves of God, you're unli unlikely to see the result because God isn't interested in our formulas. He's interested in our faith and relationship. But anyway, so he broke his fast, thought he must have misunderstood the situation. A few days after breaking his fast, he was uh, on the road on his bicycle, cycling back from work. And Holy Spirit encountered him and knocked him off his bike. And he was baptized in the power of the Spirit. This is why I simply smile when people say Holy Spirit isn't active today. That's funny because I am the product of the activity of Holy Spirit. But he knocked him off his bike. He was filled with the Spirit. He started speaking in tongues. Notice he had nobody around him who had taught him these things. He just encountered the person of the Spirit. And um, he got back on his bike after a while, cycled home, um, told my grandmother and and there are six kids. My dad was six at the time. What had happened? This is right in the capital city of Iran in Tehran. He told them what had happened. And the next morning, Holy Spirit fell on their house. And as they were getting ready for the day, all in different parts of the house, they all started speaking in tongues. My uncle, who was three, much similar to Julian's story, can't remember a day he wasn't speaking in tongues, as they all encountered the person of the Spirit. And that began the modern day church in Iran for the next three years. They had meetings in their house every night. They had hundreds, thousands of people come in. They just opened up their doors to anyone who was hungry, anyone who would listen and people came into their house, encountered Jesus. There was incredible miracles that happened out of that community. That's where my mom actually met my dad. Uh, she was 10 when she got to that community. She had a skin condition that left her with horrible, painful sores all over her body. And her sister who'd gone to a meeting before and had got saved took my mom because she knew that my mom needed healing. And in that meeting, her skin was made brand new and she never had sores again. And so the church in Iran was baptized in fire. And now decades later, the underground church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world where there are millions of people coming to Christ. Don't believe what you read in the news. It is a completely superficial retelling of the facts. What is actually happening under the surface in Iran is such a hunger that has been birthed over the last few decades that has been increasingly growing in moments of persecution and millions of Muslims are turning to Jesus as they encounter him in remarkable ways. My mom and dad uh, run a ministry into the Iranian-speaking world. They're based in the UK. They minister to Iranian refugees all over the world and uh, are involved in underground church planting in Iran. They've seen hundreds of thousands of Muslims saved through their ministry, just one ministry. There are multiple ministries. I tell you this story for two reasons. One, my grandfather was an incredibly ordinary man with many weaknesses. 
God didn't use him because he was just so amazing, so much more incredible than any other person in Iran that he had to be used. No, God used him because God is kind. And I wanna tell you in the same way that God chose my grandfather out of kindness, I believe God is choosing many across this nation out of kindness, not because of their spectacular gifting or their stage persona or their ability to eloquently communicate just because of the kindness of God. And I believe even in this moment, God is wanting to raise expectation in your hearts and in mine that He will choose to use us despite our flaws, despite our weaknesses, because He actually meant it when He said His power is attracted to weakness and His grace is sufficient for us. That wasn't simply rhetoric, but that was the reality and truth that He wants us to taste and see in our everyday moments. I believe this is the most hope-filled hour for this nation. I believe God called Julian and I and our young kids to come to this nation, not because, oh my goodness, this nation needs so much help. Anybody from across the world come. It's terrible here. Someone come and help. No, he gave us the privilege of joining in on an adventure of the kingdom that is happening all across this nation. This is a moment of revival. And if we're people of the Spirit, we'll be able to smell it in the air. We'll understand that the tide is turning and where many say things are hopeless, we are a people who rise up and say, no, I see the hope of the kingdom and His light is dawning everywhere. And so I just wanna pray for us before we even step into a book of incredible, remarkable revival and reformation. Just pray for revival fire to be sparked in an increased way in this community and through this community to other places in this nation and indeed the nations. I speak an audacity of faith that we would understand that God is able to use the one, the 10, the 100, it really doesn't matter because numbers are irrelevant. He is able to use anyone who is willing in order to change the world. And so I just bless Revival power in each and every heart in this room that we would understand a life yielded to the Spirit is a life of radical danger to the kingdom of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna look at the book of Esther. The book of Esther is a remarkable book because it never once mentions God and yet the fingerprints of God are laced all throughout the story. The behind the scenes of your life and my life is God laced throughout every part of our story. Sometimes we might not see his name written on the clouds of our lives. I want you to know that behind the scenes, God is consistently putting his fingerprints on your story for his glory. And in the book of Esther, I'm just gonna tell you the story because if not, we'd lose a lot of time if I was to read you the entire book. Although I wanna encourage you, go and read this book. It is remarkable. But in the book of Esther, we begin, it's in the um, empire of Persia. And we're introduced to a king, his name is Ahasuerus, and he is the most powerful man on the planet 
in his time. This is a historical account. This is not fairy tale, this is historical fact. Ahasuerus, the king of this empire, the most powerful man on the planet, and he decided the best way to show his power and glory to the nations was to throw a party that would last six months. Can you imagine if your president did the same? Anyway, six months, all they did was eat and drink, and the whole purpose was him to showcase his power in the nations. And then for a further week, he opened up his kingdom so that it wasn't just the officials and the army and government figures who were partying, but he opened it up so that everyone in the city was invited to come and feast at the king's table and the wine was ever flowing and there was food without limit and this was all to the glory of the king. And at the last moment, after six months and one week of eating and drinking, when the king was merry, he decided to call his queen to come and parade before him and his officials so that her beauty could please everyone in the room. Sometimes we sanitize this story, but I'll leave you to imagine and realize what in fact was going on in this moment. And the Queen Vashti, unsurprisingly, didn't really like the idea of what she was invited to do, and she said no. An unheard of thing in the ancient Middle East. No woman would say no her to, to her husband, much less a woman say no to a king so publicly. And the king publicly humiliated after all of this feasting, supposedly to his glory and power, gathers his officials together and they start discussing the problem of Vashti. And his officials say to him, listen, the problem is actually bigger than you think because this is not simply a moment where your queen has said no to you, but now throughout the kingdom, wives will think that they are okay to say no to their husbands and obviously no one can live in a society like that. And so what happens is they decide that what they need to do, some of you just got that, it's okay, we'll get there in a second. They decide what they need to do is throw Vashti out of the kingdom. She's no longer queen and that they're gonna find a new queen to replace her. And so they forcibly remove from their homes beautiful virgins from throughout the empire. They bring them into the kingdom where they are trained for a series of months before going to see the king for one day and one night so that the king can decide who he likes the most and make her the new queen. This is where Esther enters the story. She is a Jew. She has been raised by her cousin Mordecai. Uh, she's really a nobody. The Jews were nobodies in the empire of Persia in this time but she is beautiful and she's a virgin. And so she gets taken into this training time in the kingdom and Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. He's saying, hide your weaknesses. Don't tell anyone this. No one will give you favor if they realize who you really are. And so she goes through the training and in fact, in this crazy turn of events, Esther wins the king's favor and becomes the new queen of Persia. This is where the story gets really interest, interesting. Enter a man named Haman, who's one of the officials of the king. He hates the Jews for reasons detailed in the story and he concocts a plan, gets the king to sign off on it, that is this insane plan to annihilate, literally kill off all of the Jews throughout the empire. Mordecai hears of this plan, goes to Esther, 
And he says to Esther, you have to do something about this. You have to, your people and you are in danger. We're all going to be killed. And Esther says to him, uh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a nobody. Like, I might be queen, but really, we all know I'm a nobody. I can't do anything about this. And actually, the king hasn't invited me into his presence for a few months. He's gone radio silent on me. That must mean that he has no interest in me being anywhere near him. And if you approach the king without invitation, you face penalty of death. But Mordecai begins to speak to her words that begin to increase courage in her. We'll look at those in a moment. And he says to her, what if Esther, all of your life was made for just this one moment? What if you were made for such a time as this? And as he speaks to her, courage rises in her to do the unthinkable and to go to the king. And so she says, get your people to fast and pray for three days. We're gonna fast and pray for three days and then I'll go to the king. And as she approaches the king, this miraculous moment where this evil king extends grace and favor to her, which was undeserved in their custom. And he says to Esther, Esther, what can I do for you? Esther, being wise, understands the king's love language and invites him to a feast along with Haman. At that feast, the king asks her, what can I do for you? And she says, come to another feast the next night along with Haman. And in that second feast, she pleads for the life of her people and she exposes Haman's evil plot. And in this turn of events, what was meant for evil to the Jews gets turned on its head and Haman gets killed in the very gallows that he had created for Mordecai specifically. And the Jewish people are saved by one woman, by a nobody by someone insignificant who no one would ever suspect of being able to do anything. And yet she turns completely on its head the destiny of a nation. I wanna say to you again, God doesn't need numbers, he just needs one willing person. One willing person who will say yes, whatever the cost, whatever it looks like, Give me the courage to step into what you are calling me. That is all he is asking of us. And so in this story, and there's so much more that we can unpack, but I wanna unpack just a few things that introduce us more and more so to who our God is. And the first thing I wanna say is that he is creator, not cleaner. Here's the important thing in the story of Esther. When Esther is brought into the kingdom and she is made queen, everything about who she is actually changes whether she realizes it or not. She is not just a cleaner version of this orphan who was raised by her cousin. She is now completely transformed as queen of an empire. Many of us in our Christian faith, what we assume happened at the cross and resurrection of Jesus is that we went through some kind of washing machine dryer system where we go in dirty, uh, we get cleaned up by the cross and resurrection and we come out clean, but essentially we are the same person. In that paradigm, we believe God to be someone who is powerfully able to clean all our stains, that that is primarily who he 
is, that is a lie and has got nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the cross and resurrection is not a context that cleans you, it's a context that creates you. The cross and resurrection is not a context that makes your morality different. The cross and resurrection is a context that totally changes your DNA. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not a clean creation, a new creation. That means what Jesus did for you and me isn't to just scrub out as if he's like the powerful oxyclean of his day. No, no, the cross and resurrection transforms you inside out so you are no longer the, the same person who encountered Jesus at the cross. He is not cleaner, he is creator. Sometimes we treat these, these little packets like they're washing detergent pods. Because if you believe that all he did was clean you, you will believe that you can become dirty again. But if you understand that what he did was create you, that what he did, you are reborn. You have been transformed. We're told in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 5 again that he who knew no sin became, it's the substance of sin, so that you and I would become the substance of righteousness. Every cell of your being has been recreated. Why does this matter? You know, psychologists tell us that we human beings primarily don't behave out of their desires, they primarily behave of their understanding of their identity. If you believe something of yourself, whether it is true or not, you will behave from that space. I wanna tell you, you have a very powerful enemy. I loved what Larissa brought earlier from Zechariah 3. You have a powerful enemy who is heavily invested in making you believe that you are the same old, broken, dying person that Jesus found all those years ago or maybe just last week. And that he's just cleaned you up, but it's really rocky. You don't know, you're on a very, very tight rope here. And if you fall off, you're just gonna get dirty again. And you'll just go through that cleaning system. He's heavily invested in that because if you believe you are the same old person, you will live out of the same old cycles. You will not understand the freedom that is now being birthed in your veins. It is more natural for you, believer, not to sin than to sin. Why? Because your DNA has changed. You are not the same sinner. Songs that sing of me just being a sinner are unbiblical. You were a sinner. The sinner died. The sinner no longer exists. God created you anew. You are a brand new creation. Do not belittle him to simply being a cleaner. You are brand new. I am brand new. And if we understand who we are, everything will change. The words of the accuser will no longer stick because he will consistently be talking to someone who is dead and buried. 
thing is, accusation, true. Loads of things, true. But the problem is, when the enemy talks to you now, he is talking to someone who has been raised with the power of Christ, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And no accusation sticks on Jesus. We are living in these times where God is inviting us to understand who he is correctly because that transforms our understanding of who we now are. And it is vital that we understand who we now are so that we can enter into kingdom exploits with courage and faith. You know, the, the people of Israel lived with all the promises of God They saw God part the Red Sea as he delivered them from Egypt. They entered into the desert. They knew very clearly who God was and what he could do. The problem was they totally misunderstood who they were. And so they have this moment where they're overlooking the land of the promise and they send out 12 spies and the spies come back and say, listen, everything God said is totally true. It is amazing. And then they say this very interesting phrase, but the people of the land are like giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. What you believe about yourself will have a huge impact on whether you enter into your destiny. And what you believe about yourself is directly connected to what you believe about God. He is in the inventing business. He is not in the cleaning business. The second thing here is that God is a God who defies our origins. See, the thing about Esther is that she, her origins really were humble. She really was a nobody. In the ancient Middle East, women were, pro- uh, were, women were property. They had no value. Their words had no value. Their emotions had no value. Their thoughts had no value. She was truly a nothing and a nobody. And in the ancient context where your family was really all that your honor, your level of significance in society was connected to, being an orphan, which is what she was, made you even less than nothing. She was a woman, she's an orphan, and she's a Jew. Three strikes against her. She's not the person you would choose. There are better people to choose. Why not raise up Mordecai? Okay, he's a Jew, but at least he's a man. He's more likely. I wanna say this to you because I see this as a pastor creeping into the church again and again and again, whereas the people of God, we are bowing at the altar of what is likely to be used rather than worshiping our Jesus who uses anybody regardless of their origins. We're doing this in subtle ways. We're doing this by doing our personality testing to find out if we're really an apostle or a prophet. Last time I checked, your personality has got nothing to do with it. We're doing this in other ways where we look at our education background in order to tell us what our calling is. And we weigh prophetic words through the likelihood of our resume. I wanna tell you, the God who chose Paul, an expert in the law, to go and minister to Gentiles who knew nothing of the law, (laughs) 
and then chose Peter, who was a high school dropout in the law, to go and minister to Jews who were an expert in the law, tells you that God is not interested in your resume, your education, or your background. He wants you to be yielded to Him. We could think of a thousand more likely people in this story. God doesn't care who we think is likely. He is looking for who is yielded. I've lost count of the number of times I've been told in my life that I shouldn't be doing what I am doing. And I've learned very simply to say, I didn't volunteer for this, he told me. Take it up with him. I don't mind. You disagree? Gosh, you know what, on a weekly basis, I disagree too. So it's totally fine, take it up with him. You think I'm clinging onto this for dear life as if my identity is attached here? No, my identity is attached to him. But what I will tell you is I believe him enough to yield to him. Whether you're likely or not has got nothing to do with it. You know, Mordecai in this story is a picture of Holy Spirit in our lives. Mordecai in chapter four goes to Esther. He's talking about this earlier. What if you were made for such a time as this? He is speaking words to her that are designed to increase courage for what she was made to do. You know, in the body, I've observed over many years of being a Christian now how we misrepresent Holy Spirit in a way that makes many Christians afraid of Him because we describe Him in unbiblical terms. We talk about Holy Spirit as if He's really the control monitor of heaven. He's interested in quality control of the product. He's the one running around with his clipboard with a very strict design of what you were meant to be. And he whispers at you all day, every day. We call it conviction. What it actually is is condemnation about how you're not hitting the mark and how your sins are not good. And, how, and he's just constantly, and we talk about this. You know, I was at work and I was gossiping with my friends and Holy Spirit convicted me. Uh, what we mean is made me feel bad about what I've done and so I stopped doing it. The thing is, there's a, there's a problem with that paradigm because when we read John 16, Galatians 4 and Romans 8, first of all, John 16 says the Holy Spirit does convict people of sin, but it's not believers, it's unbelievers uh, because he's wanting to lead people to repentance. His job is not to convict the believer of their sinfulness. Read Galatians 4, Romans 8. His job is to convict, to convince the believer of their righteousness, of their right standing, of their oneness with Jesus, of the reality of you and I being sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Holy Spirit has no interest in running around after you telling you how bad you are. All he is doing every day, all day, is running around after you, telling you, you were made for more than this. You were made for a purpose. You were made for destiny. You think that song was made up by anything other than Holy Spirit? No, you were made 
for purpose in the kingdom of God. That's what Holy Spirit is telling you. He's whispering to you. He's whispering to me when we fall short of what we were made for, not how terrible you are, but come on, son and daughter, you were made with glory in mind. Let me show you righteousness that is glowing in every fiber of your being because Jesus Christ made you the very substance of righteousness. That's what he's doing. Too many Christians frightened of spending time with him because they already know how bad they are. You need to spend time with him. He will show you who you really are. Mordecai spoke words that increased courage. That is what Holy Spirit is doing to you and me. When we spend time with him, only when we spend time with him will we find the courage for our destiny because I wanna tell you, every single one of us has a destiny that requires more of us than we can possibly achieve without the presence and power of Holy Spirit. If you think you're walking in your destiny and you can do it based on your personality profile, I wanna tell you, God bless you, but you have no idea what your destiny is. Your destiny is in the realm of faith, which is in the realm of the impossible. It means by nature, when you do the math on what you can achieve, even if you are the most wonderful person on the planet, your destiny must go beyond your ability. If not, you've not discovered it. It will terrify you. I laugh when people say, I, someone gave me this prophetic word, it's, it's so unlikely. Gosh, it's actually really scary. It's too big for me, can't be God. I'm like, have you met him? Your destiny will terrify you because it will be impossible for you to achieve. Welcome to life in the power of the Spirit. The beautiful thing about the words of God in our lives as Holy Spirit speaks to us is that they're never wishful thinking. It's not like God is like, oh, I really hope this will be true of you. You know, the disciples realized when they walked with Jesus that his words in themselves contained the power to do that which they demanded. That's why he didn't just simply pray for the sick. Oh, dear God, if it's your will to heal today, it's always his will to heal because he is healer. He can't divorce himself from his nature. That's a different story for a different time. Please, maybe heal this person. Right, what does he do? Blind man, see. He's releasing in that one word the power to achieve that which his word demands. He says to the lame man, walk. And in that moment, power is released for the lame man to get up and walk. It's what's so beautiful and powerful about when he speaks to the woman caught in adultery and he says to her, go and sin no more. And so often we read that as like right at the last minute so that she didn't misunderstand. Jesus just does like one last kind of, okay, I let you go free, but don't you do it ever again. No, no, he is releasing the power in his words for her to go and sin no more. He is setting her free from the shackle of the sin that she was caught in. It is a power word that he imparts to her. It's why when Jesus is, when Jesus is walking on water and Peter is stuck in the boat, he says to Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Peter understood it 
When he speaks, power is released to do that which he commands. I wanna tell you, when Jesus looks at you and he says to you, I made you to go to the nations to be a voice in dark places, he's not saying, oh, I really hope. He's saying, I'm releasing the power to you to do that which is impossible without my power in your life. His words contain the power for transformation. He's a God who is creator, not cleaner. He's a God who defies our origins. He is a God who is our majority. See, the thing is, can you imagine? We've got, we got to put ourselves in Esther's shoes. We read these things as if they're so easy. I think of Esther in that moment. She knows people are praying, but she's on her own. This one woman against a king of an empire surrounded by all his officials. You don't think it cost her in that moment? You don't think she was terrified as she walked down that corridor towards the throne room? You don't think every power of hell was saying to her, you are outnumbered, turn around. You know, the thing is the enemy is a liar, so you shouldn't take his word for it. If you do just a simple case of math, we'll understand that the enemy really is consistently overplaying his hand. Because when you read the Bible, we're told that when the enemy fell and he took some of the angels of heaven with him, he took one third of the angels of heaven with him, which means uh, that even if you discount God, who I'm sure we'll all agree is a majority all in his own, but if you ignore God, uh, the enemy is in a really unfair battle the whole time, uh, unfair for him, you understand, because there are two angels to every demon. My math isn't great, but I'm, I think we're all on the same page here. So the enemy is the one who is consistently outnumbered in any battle because there are more angels to demons in any given situation. So when the enemy tells you, you are just on your own, you are outnumbered, you've got to understand that he is a liar. You shouldn't take his word for it. So many Christians listening to that feel like they are backed into a corner because that is the enemy's strategy always to make you feel like you are the powerless one in the situation and he holds all the power. He is a liar. He is telling you something which is literally the opposite of the truth because Jesus disarmed the power of the enemy on the cross and he put all things under his feet. Last time I checked, his body is right here, right above his feet, which means you and I are over the enemy in where we are seated in Christ. And that is the place of our reality. You are not outnumbered. Sometimes people say to me, how can a woman also so vertically challenged as you Show so much courage, stand up in front of crowds, speak like this. I wanna tell you it's because I'm not alone as I'm standing here, because he is my majority. In any room, whether I stand seemingly on my own or surrounded by 10,000, the reality is he is my majority. There is no context in your life where you are backed into a corner that is simply a lie of the enemy. There is no battle that you are in where you are at an unfair disadvantage. When he is with you, you consistently hold the unfair advantage. 
Esther might have thought she was walking alone or maybe she knew more than that. But the reality is she was surrounded by chariots of angels. She was surrounded by God himself. She walked in the majority as she walked into that room. The person who held the power in that room was not the king, but was the woman yielded to God himself. He is your majority. He uses silence as an invitation. So interesting to me that in Esther's thought process, she talks about how not only has the king not invited her right now, but that it has been a while since the, enemy, uh, since the king invited her at all. She's noting that he has gone silent. And her interpretation of that silence is one of rejection over her and one that makes her situation more tenuous might have been true in the reality of an evil, evil kingdom. But the thing about our God is that he never uses silence as a means of rejection. Silence in scripture is always an invitation to lean in. There's this powerful moment in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus is walking with his disciples and a Canaanite woman comes to him and pleads him for mercy for her daughter. She is desperate and she is pleading with him. And it's, it's a very interesting, it's actually one of my favorite passages in scripture. We don't have time to unpack it completely. But the interaction on the surface is very strange because first Jesus says nothing at all to her. He ignores her, which is really not how Jesus responds to anybody else in the accounts that we have in the gospels. It is a weird moment where he goes radio silent. But what he's doing in that moment and as the conversation continues and it gets actually worse rather than better where he becomes incredibly offensive seemingly in how he speaks to her, what he's actually doing is inviting from her and his disciples who are watching their truest beliefs about him to float up to the surface. Because you know God uses silence in our lives to show us what we really think about who he is. Because as the disciples did in that moment, you and I fill the silence with what we believe is true. And in that moment with the Canaanite woman in Matthew's gospel, the disciples fill it with, she's an inconvenience. Deal with her so that we can move on. That is their truest belief of the broken in front of them. We misunderstand if we don't think Jesus was silent intentionally to draw out their truest thoughts from what was going on in their hearts. But he does it in our lives in order to expose areas of brokenness and unbelief in order to bring them into healing so that we can lean into him afresh. I wanna say this to you, some of you feel like Esther where you don't feel like the king has given you a personal invitation for a while and you're misreading it as a rejection of who you are and he's saying to you, no sweetheart, I'm allowing lies that you believed about me to surface right up here so that you can see them and then you can break them and you can lean into who I really am because what you and I think about God is actually the most important thing about us. In Matthew 25, there's this parable 
where Jesus is talking about talents. And there's a master who gives three servants different talents. He invests it into them. He leaves it to use those talents. And you know, the one who's given most multiplies it. The one who's given second multiplies it. The last one says to the master, when the master comes back, I did nothing with my talent. I hid it. Because why? Because I knew you to be a hard man. Nothing in the parable corroborates that. In fact, the parable shows us the master was incredibly generous and trusting. But what the servant believed of the master impacted what the servant was able to do with what was given to him. And he says, I was afraid and I hid the talent. Unless you and I see God accurately, we will be afraid and we will be paralyzed from our destiny. Silence is not a rejection, it is an invitation, come close. Allow him to expose our hearts to ourselves. Sometimes we don't wanna see what's in there. He's saying, let me show you so that your faith won't stay skin deep, held ever at the mercy of what you actually believe. But we will break the lies that you've grown to believe so that you can enter into destiny. He uses silence as an invitation. Let's do a couple more if we can. Are we okay on time? Okay. He brings breakthrough through feasting. This table, if we understand it right, will be the most joy-filled context for us. Because bread and wine are a context of incredible victory. If we understand the joy to which he's inviting us into, we'll understand that breakthrough in the kingdom doesn't require us to become the most intense, depressed people that anyone has ever seen. You would sometimes think that. Some Christians wear their intensity and their somber prayer lives as a badge of honor. You meet people like that. Listen, before I go into this, because I'm gonna be a bit cheeky, um, please forgive me. But I wanna say I believe in intercession, I value intercession, I love prayer, and I thank God for powerful intercessors in our community. But I wanna give you a description of what is not powerful intercession, because I believe this is actually a stronghold of the enemy that needs to be broken in the church. Intercessors who are intense and depressed hold no power. And you'll meet intercessors like this where they're so gloomy and they drop their voice a couple of octaves to tell you that they are an intercessor. And everything about them is intense, scary, and slightly morose. And their intercession is clothed in wailing and gnashing of teeth. And they'll tell you how many hours they wept and wept because the situation is so dark. No, no, you won't even understand it. And they'll spend a long time describing to you how dark the thing is that they're trying to break. See, the Bible says in Nehemiah 8 that the joy of the Lord is your strength. We meet too many Christians who are anemic in power because they have misunderstood joy to be frivolity rather than joy to be a weapon. If you are in a battle, I'm gonna tell you, you need strength. And if you need strength, I can tell you where to find it. And it's not in your intense, depressed hours
terms of wailing, it's in inviting the Spirit of God to birth in you the fruit of joy. And last time I checked, fruit is external on a tree, not so far internal that you would have to chop that tree in two to verify whether it's there or not. Too many unhappy Christians super spiritualizing the fruit that they carry as if as long as they describe it to you, it's there. If I can't taste it, it's not there. I I told you I was gonna be cheeky. We serve a God who is not interested and you proving your spirituality by how unhappy you are on the earth, but is desiring to introduce you to himself, the host of the party. You see again and again in the gospels where Jesus gives parables of the lost coming home, it is the father in the story who hosts the party. It's the religious older brother in Luke 15 in the parable of the lost son who hears the sound of a party and he is so clueless because he is religious that he doesn't understand what that sound means. He has to ask a servant, he's hearing joy, and he has to ask a servant, what's that? Too many of us in the church are exactly like that, preaching about joy but clueless as to what it looks like. But if we are people who have actually met our Father rather than studied about our Father, we will understand that He is so happy that He is where joy resides, not deep, deep down, super spiritual joy, reality joy that you can taste. It's why the Pharisees hated Jesus because He actually didn't fall in within their requirement of intense, somber spirituality because they were religious, but He was anointed with the oil of gladness above His companions. That means Jesus was the happiest person in any room. And yes, I am using happy and joy interchangeably because joy includes happiness and is over and above. And sometimes we can say, oh, but joy isn't happiness. You're right, it's more. It's not less. I want us to understand that Vashti and Esther did the same thing. They both defied the custom of the king. The breakthrough came in the context of feasting. So many of us doing intercession, running around to find the stronghold at the top of a tower where Jesus is saying, sit down and eat. Psalm 23, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The greatest intercession battle for breakthrough that you can do is not to run around your city and find some kind of ley lines that you need to break. It's to sit down, feast together in the kingdom because his kingdom is one of incredible joy. Let's do last one, because I want to get to ministry. The Father is reintroducing us to himself, one who is kinder than we dare believe. See, the thing in this story is that even this evil king represents something of miraculous favor. When everyone was expecting Esther to actually get the death penalty 
he extends mercy to her and opens up favor and says, I will do whatever you wish. The book of Esther is opening up for us who our father is. He is not slow to give. He is not a demanding taskmaster. He is not a horrible, controlling policeman, big brother watching you figure. He is the kindest father you could dare imagine and more so because he exceeds what we ask, think, or even imagine. You know, in this story, I can't help but think of Luke 4, where it's this moment where Jesus is in the synagogue and he's given a scroll to read and he opens up the scroll and he reads the words from Isaiah 61, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, we know the words so well, to, to declare freedom, to give sight to the blind, to set the prisoner free, right? He's reading that. And he gets to the end of the scripture that he's reading, well, almost to the end. I'm just gonna flick there for a second. And we're gonna land with this. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we're told he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you know what's so unusual about what Jesus does is that he doesn't read the full scripture because the scripture doesn't end with the year of the favor of the Lord. It goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read that, why? Because Jesus on the cross absorbs every punishment that would be on you and me. He absorbs everything that is broken, everything that has judgment against sin. He absorbs it all so that Jesus becomes the favor filled full stop of heaven. If you want to know what God thinks about you, there is no vengeance or judgment or anger that he feels towards you. Every drop of that has been dealt with on the cross and in the resurrection. I wanna tell you what Jesus reads and is fulfilled, is fulfilled for you and me. It is the year of the favor of the Lord. The king is kinder than Esther deserves. Our king is kinder than we imagine. He is wanting to equip and empower you and me because he has chosen us, not because we are likely, quite the opposite, in fact, but he has chosen us to be bearers of his goodness everywhere we go, to be a people who feast for breakthrough, to be a people who understand his silence as an invitation, not a rejection, to be a people who understand that he created us, not cleaned us, to be a people who understand that he will use us and defy our origins if we yield to him. Won't you stand with me? Are we okay to go for a few minutes? You guys have been very kind. We're just gonna go for a few more minutes. 
but I wanna just leave space. There is a lot that I've said this morning. He loves you, He loves you, He loves you. He has chosen you for purpose, not because it's a song lyric, but it's because what He chose to do from the beginning of time. He has no intention of bailing on you or leaving you alone in a fight. He is your majority. And I believe today He's wanting to restore to our hearts an audacity of faith, a courage to step up into all that He's called us to, a belief in His kindness and His goodness. I believe there are some of you who've been feeling the silence of the Lord and you're thinking He has left you and He's saying, no, no, I am so close. I'm inviting you into deeper waters with me. I am doing heart surgery on you because beloved, there's some stuff in your heart that is keeping you from your destiny. There are some of you that have been facing a battle and you've been carrying depression in that battle. And God is wanting to clear away anxious thoughts and depression. He is wanting to bring healing and restore the fruit of joy in your life because joy is supernatural. It can spring up anywhere as long as we're yielded to the person of the Spirit. He is wanting to free some of us like that servant in the talents where we have misunderstood Him to be a hard God, where He is keeping us in line and you better get it right. And if you take this risk and it doesn't work, then you're back to the back of the line. That is not how He works. He is bringing us into a fresh encounter with His kindness. A God who uses incredibly weak ordinary human beings to bring His glory because He is just that good. Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Surely, not on the days where I'm more moral than other days, not on the days where I've prayed and prayed and fasted more than other days, not on the days where I've got it right, not on the days He feels like it. No, no, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Not when I die and get to heaven will I taste goodness and mercy. No, no, all of the days of my life. I wanna tell you, God who is present in this room is wanting to give you right now a fresh encounter with His goodness and mercy. You are flanked by goodness and mercy wherever you go. There is not a second of your life where goodness and mercy are not attached to you. They have excellent aim and they are with you wherever you go. I wanna give you an opportunity just in this moment, just to allow Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. We get to repent of lies we've believed. Repentance isn't saying sorry simply, but it's allowing Holy Spirit to change the way we think. And for many of us in this moment, we need to do some business with God where we just allow Him to show us lies. We say, I'm gonna throw that out. I've allowed accusation to stick where it's not allowed to stick. Do you know who has authority over your mind? It's not me, it's you. You have authority.
authority over your mind. You get to filter out nonsense and allow truth to be planted. So I wanna encourage you right now, allow Holy Spirit to come and reveal truth to you in place of lies. In the name of Jesus, we speak against the lies of the enemy. Thank you, Father, that you are good, that you are with us and that you are our majority. I pray in the name of Jesus for such a settling of truths in our lives that we would become people who are...